Welcome to Invitation to the Species, where we're asking artists, writers, and thoughtful individuals to speak to how their lives and work manifest in the conditions of our times. My name is Alicia Mascarenas, and I'm a host of this series, along with Sarah Riggs, on behalf of TAMAS, an intercultural arts organization. Together in Lenape Hoking, the traditional territories of the Lenape and Canarsie people, colonially called Brooklyn, New York, we talk with our guests about the past, so how their parents' and grandparents' lives imprint on their own, about the present, what's current and compelling for them in the immediacy of their lives, and about the future, their hopes, aspirations, and predictions for what's to come. As you prepare now to listen, you might just take a moment to make any adjustments that would allow you to be here with easy focus. So eliminating any other distractions, you might close your eyes and just turn your attention to the channels of your ears. And as you're ready, we hope that you'll enjoy this episode of Invitation to the Species as much as we've enjoyed making it. conversation you're about to hear, What Kind of Language Are We Left With, was held between Miren Arsanios and Selena Sue and recorded in February 2021. With Miren and Selena, both motherless mothers without mother tongues, in Selena's words, we discuss the lineages of their languages, liminal subjectivities, and the impossibility of we in light of differentially distributed access to resources. Together, we consider how our social relations are being rewritten and disrupted in a time of ongoing crisis and disaster. We talk about alternative economies and how Zoom killed the classroom. We contend with loneliness and the limits of the nuclear family and what it means to be part of an amorphous and constantly changing collective. Following our conversation, you'll also hear readings by Miren and Selena from their own work. From Miren, you'll hear an excerpt from Notes on Mother Tongues, which was published with Ugly Duckling Press in 2020. And from Selena, you'll hear an excerpt of a collage in progress, also published in 2020, and which can be found in full at thepoetryfoundation.org. Selena and Miren, so glad to have you with us. You both act and write with a knowledge of the bodies that are present in our tongues, the bodies embedded in our languages, colonized and colonizing bodies. Specifically, I wonder if you could each talk a little bit about how your parents' bodies are present, sewn and re-sewn in the language formation and communication you engage in as writers and mothers. I wonder if there are secrets in the languages that you are either privy to and wish to articulate or feel excluded from and that come up in different places. Selena, you wrote in a poem recently about you and Miren both as motherless mothers without mother tongues. In your poem, JFK Airport, you, that came out in the book Landia with Belladonna, you wrote of how I am an assemblage of maybes. And Miren, you've written recently in your Ugly Duckling Press chapbook, 
notes on mother tongues, colonialism, class, and giving what you don't have, of my language like her, my mother, has a contentious relationship to her, my language. I'm interested in Miren and how you refer to your language much of the time as she, and Selena, how you've re your mother into your present. Okay, wow, that's such a, um, a rich and, and thoughtful question. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Alicia, uh, for hosting this conversation. Um, I took notes while you were talking, Sarah, um, and um, sorry, can I ask you to be just the last part of the question, like the because it was such an elaborate question, but there was a question mark at the end. So can you just reread this last the last sentence? Yeah, I'm I'm interested in how you refer to your language much of the time as she. Mm -hmm. Right. OK, thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think um, in thinking about mother tongues, I wanted um, a degree of lucidity and a, a degree of separation between me and the language. And I think that's a device that comes up in a lot of my work in which the language becomes um, a third presence. So that that doesn't belong to me, who isn't, isn't really sort of part of me, but um, exists also as its own self outside of my own body. So, so to dramatize the language and to fictionalize it in that way helped me also talk about it. Because I think um, talking about it, yeah, I, I don't know, um, it's harder to talk about things that are inside you and um, without really having um, um, the ability to distinguish what actually forms your language and how you relate to it. So that was just a device for me to sort of um, separate myself from my language. Um, and, and in addressing her as a she, she also became her own character. So um, as I was writing, I was also discovering her, um, which was not my mother tongue, but, but a language, uh, which happened also to um, be the language probably that um, I'm most familiar with. Um, but, uh, but the she became, why, why was she female? That's a good question. Uh, I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's easier for me to write about women, I guess. And it's easier for me to write in a lineage of, to, to imagine the she being part of a lineage of, of mothers and daughters. I think my, my mother was definitely part of the conversation and her mother tongue as well. Um, but I have a, a very a kind of complicated relationship to both my mother and her language. And I think um, a lot of my writing is, is about disentangling the, these, um, um, that relationship. I think my mother's tongue was Spanish. Um, she she um, spoke to me in Spanish, but um, she also, as a household, we also adopted French because we went to French schools. Um, um, growing up in several countries, uh, the the kind of French system was um, one that we could find pretty much everywhere. And so we went to French school and also Lebanon, French being sort of Lebanon's um, um, second language, or at least used to be. 
So, um, so French took over and, and Spanish was spoken and Arabic, Arabic was spoken, but, um, but the dominant language at home, I think was French. And I think, um, emotionally speaking, I think though it was, it it might have been Spanish. So I, I kind of try to understand also how multiple languages could coexist and also fulfill different functions. So when my mother was really mad, it was the Spanish that came up for me and um, that came up for her. And um, and so I associate also Spanish with a kind of uh, an emotional intensity, which is also kind of cliche, but, but it's, it's what, ha- what happened at home. Um, and, and Arabic was always in the background because my, my father, you know, persisted with the Arabic. So it's, it was always there, but it was a language that I understood passively being in an environment in a country that didn't speak Arabic back then. And we were in Canada in the eighties and, um, our environment was, um, there were a lot of immigrants, uh, people who had, um, left Lebanon because of the civil war. And so there were a bit, there was a big Lebanese community. So Lebanon was always there in my, um, while I was growing up. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, that your answers has so many, your question has so many facets to it. I'm, I'm, I, and I can talk on and on, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think the she was just a, a device for me to, to try to, um, start speaking, not start speaking to the language that, um, I was, that, that shaped me, um, Great. Thank you, Miren. Thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation, Sarah, Alicia. It's so lovely to be in conversation in yet another context with Miren as well. Um, And your question is so rich and immediately to me jumps on so many scales. operates on so many scales of the intimate, the personal, bodily, and the political. And um, and I was struck by the phrase in your question, bodies present in our tongues, because I was thinking of tongues not as um, idioma, as language, but as tongue um, Um, in our mouths and just that, just the tongues in our mouths and our bodies and the bodies in our tongues um, indicates to me one of the thorny contradictions here. And I was really struck by Miren's discussion of her pamphlet and uh, of your essay and talking about trying to disentangle because I both have some of the same preoccupation and drive and I'm also trying to um, to embrace the contradictions in some ways and just try to uh, better understand for myself how we are all relationally dialogically mutually constitutive I don't know exactly what um, how we're um, relationally built and we don't have any we don't have truly independent entities and what my role remains amidst all of that. Um, so I have, I don't have a native tongue exactly either. I don't think my parents never really spoke to me in their native languages. I mean, there was a little bit of like, yes, they called me by my Chinese name when they were angriest, perhaps, uh, as your mother did in Spanish, but 
it doesn't feel like a satisfying answer um, that as to how we relate to different languages. So as sort of indicated by the title of my book, Landia, Landia, this made up word, um, to me, what is intimate and familial is this um, dwelling in a figurative borderland that is neither here nor there, and then trying to make sense of how that positioning might operate in the larger world without being one of the periphery or marginality, um, how to think about the liminal or the in-between or the mixed in different ways. But I also wanted to say that I was so struck by so many aspects of your essay on mother tongues, both because of thinking through the historical embeddedness of the languages we grow up with and their different effective and political economic registers, but also because of the material conditions, partly because I also grew up sort of surrounded by Lebanese folks because there's so many Lebanese folks in Brazil. So a lot of my best friends in childhood were and that and and I actually brought out, right before this conversation, I brought out one of my mom's sort of jewelry boxes from Brazil because we lived in Brazil. She became an amateur gemologist and was, it also it was an immigrant thing of like, what can I invest not outrageously large amounts of money in that will hopefully keep but and also I remember watching the evening news and how the evening news would report both the real the official currency exchange vis-a-vis the dollar and the real shadow market one um and my parents would ask me it like sometimes at dinner when I was five or six years old what's the currency exchange vis-a-vis the real today and what's the real one (laughs) and um and so there are all these ways in which there are all of these scripts real being the formal real being the lived one that's actually not the official one, the hidden script and languages that we live and and thinking through all of this without the without the imperative from our parents um, necessarily present. And the other part of your question, Sarah, that was really striking to me was how I might make my mother present right now. And I think I haven't figured it out. It's been uh, eight years almost, and I still engage in magical thinking and think that, oh, maybe one day she's going to um, show up and and meet my daughter. Um, and But... And and becoming a mother definitely has made me just reflect and travel across time and space in different ways because I both immediately think about what I was like as a kid and and then also I relate to my parents in wholly new ways as parents and understand perhaps hopefully their struggles in new ways even if my relationship to them and history is so complicated 
So, so even trying to think about what would I try to reenact in my own way, it's so simple but so fraught. Thank you, Selena. Can I just jump in because I had um, Selena? What you said was um, was was triggering so many thoughts for me. Um, but about the the jewelry part, which is interesting, because I was thinking about inheritance. So you know, language is something that we inherit from um, our our families or our parents. But I was also in my pamphlet. I was trying to think about the um, the the nexus between material and immaterial inheritance as well. Um, and so, um, and this is just a question mark that I have in general in life is, is, um, the fact that, um, structural loss of, um, like let's say like, uh, conditions of structural violence will lead to also the loss of this immaterial, um, inheritance, right? Um, so the loss of a language or the loss of, um, of a culture, right? Um, and so, um, and so the, the, my pamphlet tries to think through, through these things. And I think you, you, you sort of, um, describe them very, very beautifully, Selena. And I was moved also by, by, um, by the way that you talked about your, your mother, and and showed us this this little jewelry box and i was thinking about um my mother also is um such a fan of jewelry and <laughs> she collected jewelry throughout all her life and she was constantly complaining because uh, because i didn't show any interest in her jewelry and uh, she was very disappointed by that and and now so so when my father died he left us like an inheritance in lebanon which is now um, completely valueless because of the devaluation of the of the currency in Lebanon. So basically, Lebanon lost eighty percent of the currency in Lebanon lost eighty percent of its value in the past year and a half. My inheritance is basically worth almost nothing at this at this point. But I still have my mother's jewelry, <laughs> which are actually right now in the bank. Um, and somewhere in like a, a coffrefort, you know, like a safe, you know. Um, and so, and so I was thinking about like her probably instinct of like, you know, um, buying these, this jewelry as a, as a safe value or something that could actually be, um, you know, outlast, you know, whatever, uh, um, crisis, you know, um, uh, might, might be happening or, and so, um, so yeah, so so her her jewelry is still there. Yeah, I don't know what to do with this jewelry. I gave one piece to my partner's sister when she got married. I gave one piece to the woman she was marrying. Um, if that felt really good and right, but otherwise they're semi precious. They're such a specific style that's also very historically embedded and not my style <laughs> and so they're and they're they have more value because they're semi-precious stones not necessarily precious stones they perhaps have more value emotionally sitting here in some ways than they might as a commodity in a bank so what to do with that yeah 
And Selena, I think of the scraps of your mother's clothing that we that were sewn together in a book at an event that we did together with Elena Bariolo. And for months I had a bag of your mother's <laughs> clothes. And more recently I saw that you and your daughter were wearing clothes that you had made. Um, and that that was, can you explain how that was connected with your mother? One of the few photos I have of myself as a baby with my mom is of us wearing clothes that clearly she had made. So I had, so I had been wanting for so long, probably the past couple of years to just sew my daughter and me some matching outfits and think as a sort of tribute. Um, and as yet another way to think about both the material and the immaterial um, and how they might be manifest in different ways. And along these lines, I, I also have been thinking a lot about how to not romanticize and how to take different, um, my mom or anybody else and how to take folks seriously as serious thinkers, as ser people who lived seriously, um, when we didn't, not only didn't share the same language in a lot of ways, but also the same vocabulary. And um, you, your essay, Mirren, on, um, ha on treating your language as agentic and as an entity also reminded me, I, I think a, a Jack Spicer line, my vocabulary did this to me. And certainly I have an estranged, distanced relationship to each language I use. By now, English is the one that I'm by far most comfortable with, but I torture my students sometimes by having, by knowing and using the proper grammatical terms of things that native speakers don't never need to learn. Like, no, you need commas around this a positive and you need this and that. Um, and that's partly because I learned English artificially in middle school rather than growing up with it. Um, and, and, but and so I have that sort of distanced relationship and with Chinese, which I'm not literate in. I knew a few hundred words, maybe, um, at one point um, in writing. I, I um, have normalized so much of it, and I'm distanced from a lot of it in a way that, that I really enjoy. Um, if I'm not feeling self-conscious and guilty and ashamed about how awful my Mandarin is, then I really enjoy like the the phrase for be careful in Mandarin is Xing. it's small heart as if my heart is supposed to become smaller um, when I cross the street or as if I'm inherently careless if I'm big hearted. And I'm always uh, and I love being able to hear and think about the metaphors in languages and to try to denormalize our assumptions in English. Like, um, like I joke sometimes, if a woman has had a hysterectomy, can she still be hysterical um, to my students sometimes? Because 
we've normalized so much and that sort of distancing I appreciate but then of course we long for some notion of comfort if not home at the same time yeah I'm thinking I mean home and and belonging also comes up in in a lot of your work as well and just I've been reading both of your work in a way that's kind of become sort of ambient to the point where I'm I love kind of like got lost in it which was like really nice but then I came today and I was like oh how can I like bring questions out of this um but then I ended up Miran coming back to this is sort of you know taking things in a different turn but I came back to your text how to be together um that was published in print and matter in there's like a pdf on their site with like this sort of cloud image on the one side um and there's a passage that I'd like to read if that's okay with you um just thinking about the the we and um yeah there's there's a lot there um and looking at the the impossibility of a we which I'm also thinking about with Selena what you were saying about these liminal spaces that are not marginal or periphery but are kind of like existing on another terrain um so the passage that i've just been like fixating on is um it begins as long as some of us are surviving or coping or thriving we are not possible we isn't possible if it isn't inclusive of all the women in the refugee camps at the border the women imprisoned without children the women scrubbing your office floors and fighting in occupied lands we will not be possible as long as you have something uninterrupted power time to read access to health that someone else is denied or as long as what we desire is defined by humanist imaginings of togetherness liberal philanthropy and other terribly good intentions so i've just been kind of rereading that passage and then Selena for some reason it it also brought me to this line in this poem that Sarah shared with me that you wrote with her, to her in your correspondence which I think is for Nerve Epistle Sarah's book that's coming out and there's just this one little piece that kept catching me where you write if one if what belongs to you is yours what belongs to me is mine's so yeah i think my question with both of these texts and um to both of you is is um i'm just curious what brought you to write those lines um like what were the the conditions um or what was the context or the the situation or the occasion that that brought that writing about i can say um for for this text um it was a prompt by um for the for the online magazine night boats online magazine called resonance and the prompt i think is um how can we um cope like cope survive or thrive together or something like that i mean i don't remember the exact phrasing of the prompt but it was um i think at the beginning of the the outbreak of the pandemic and they send this question to um um a few authors who responded and then the 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 responses were published online and so um so i i was just thinking about the difference between 
coping, surviving, and, and thriving, and um, how these and how these sort of different degrees of of living could be ca- categorized, and who gets to do what. Um, and and so I was thinking, oh, we shouldn't we shouldn't think in degrees of of ascendancy or or um, what you know. Um, how can we think differently about what it means to be alive without um, 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 these categories pointed to also in a way um, reasserting these differences, right? So so I was thinking like, how can we um, how can we be together without having to cope, thrive, or survive? And um, what kind of life would be possible without these degrees of, um, of um, let's say, um, well-being or, or um, difficulty? Um, so it just seemed unfair that some, some had to survive and some could, tr- could thrive, right? So like how, how, can, how can we all sort of just live decently right? <laughs> which comes back to this uh for me like a you know um a question of of um of uh yeah of politics of course and of course of um how do you imagine a, cons- a constituency in which um there is a shared um shared access to resources shared access to health shared access to um where no one has to survive right so these are just like you know, basic questions about how, how to, um, what to fight for, right? Or how do you want to organize your, um, your understanding of what it means to be part of a, a society? So, so this is what triggered this. Like we, we are not possible until there is, um, there is um, a you, you know, like until there's there is like something that's outside of that we. Um, and so that's how I started thinking about it. Um, and, um, it is, a, an aspirational we, of course, uh, but, but definitely a we that's, uh, worth imagining. Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I had so many different thoughts while listening to both your question, Alicia, thank you. And, um, your comments, Megan. Um, one thing that is quick is that um, the line on philanthropy that uh, that Alicia read out loud reminded me of this um, mic dropping line from Ruthie Wilson Gilmore during a lecture recently, which is philanthropy is the private allocation of stolen social wages, and um, and that felt very in keeping with what you were talking about. And of course, this is something I'm really preoccupied with of how to think outside the liberal, uh, as in focusing on individual rights, um, classical liberal or neoliberal, um, uh, liberal capitalist imagination and just how to go about that and how to think about solidarities and construct a we without everyone present with deeply unequal resources and and access to ways of relating to one another and um how to imagine something different and the way i usually talk is try 
to start to talk about this for myself is in architectural terms of, of thinking about when it snows as it is outside today, outside our windows um, um, right now, and how the streets are a mass expanse right after and what paths we take and whether they actually abide by the paths that institutions and urban planners have laid out for us or not. But, and that's the easiest metaphor of desire lines that I can think of, but otherwise I just don't know when I really get to think concretely out of the box and try to enact something different, ideally in relation with others. Um, it's, and that's what I'm preoccupied with in my scholarly work also of thinking beyond elections every four years for uh, in terms of how we define our democracy um, and thinking about um, modes of way uh, of voicing our opinions outside of predetermined notions of resistance versus um, interiority that gets really all of these different channels get dismissed of course in reality it's so much more complex but but in working with activists I also have heard so many frustrations over the years about how they're as a lot of the activists I've worked with over the years feel like they're more adept at articulating critiques of the prison industrial complex than articulating a new world. And if you get too far um, and you try to scale, um, unless you've walked the walk, unless you've tr struggled, what they say ends up sounding cheesy or like platitudes. So how do we engage in solidarities to engage in the struggle together so that our lessons are, are hard earned and actually might lead to something rather than sounding like platitudes? Right. And maybe if I can just add something to that, um, it's interesting because I think that the language around philanthropy and um, you know, good intentions, and this is not who we are, you know, kind of, of discourse. Um, you know, when, 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 um, when Trump was, was, um, um, allowing kids to be abducted or, or all the horrible things that he did during his presidency, but I mean, he's not the only one, of course, there's a whole history that predates that, but, but how a lot of people were, um, felt um, indignant and said, you know, and the slogan was, this is not who we are. And again, like going back to this we, well, well, um, this is, this is exactly who you are, you being like America. Um, and, and as long as you, you sort of um, sustain the, the, the narrative of, of, um, you know, the morally sort of sound nation that's, um, you know, offers everyone, you know, um, the same opportunities, etc. whatever um, narrative <laughs> sustains the American um, dream, so-called American dream. So, yeah, so I was just like questioning that we as well as like, this is not who we are. Um, but um, the language, I think that it's, it's really a question of language, right? Um, 
you were you were describing Selena how there's a cliche also in the language of critique and there's a, also a cliche in the language of liberalism so what what kind of language are we left with um and and um when these languages become so conspicuous right so i'm looking for daycares for my son and um as you know selena and i was looking at this um um summer camp school you know forest kind of school and when you open their website uh, there's like a kind of uh, pop-up thing that comes up and, and that says um black lives matter or or something like that right and um something that that signals that they're um um aware of race and structural inequality but then if you go to see their prices they are so prohibitive you know that this is a contradiction right like everyone wants to be um you know mindful of um of uh structural inequalities yet at the same time the system is just um um yeah completely unfair so <clears throat> the contradictions or the clashes between the language that exists and the and the and the structures that are there i think is something that um got me thinking about this piece but also i think we should think everyone should think about um in terms of yeah what what kind of or is language even enough or is that, is that even a good question you know to think like what kind of language uh, are we left with or what kind of language can we really sort of think with or um imagine with right yeah I, that dovetails into some questions about class and economies of the present um you know here we are situated in a very rich environment which is extreme that has a lot of precarity and a lot of desperation a lot of jobs lost there's a kind of palpable feeling on the street of desperation i find and i was thinking in our kind of dress rehearsal to this conversation we we were we were talking about precarity and we were also talking about the various kinds of ways that um you're exchanging and kind of bartering and using kind of alternative economies with you know colleagues and other parents in the neighborhood um and i was thinking about françoise vergès who uh initiated the imitation of the species podcast um in her essay on the racial capital of scene in verso online you know you the 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 question of like how everything is connected um with respect to race and class and um capitalism and how individuals and in smaller communities like respond and react and like what 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 are you finding as alternatives or growths are they growths out of the capitalist scene or are they um like how how do you how do you define how how you are positioning yourself as writers teachers mothers I think for me of course this is a really tough time as it is for everyone we have workshops on how to deal with the with death in the classroom a few times a semester now I know that my students are dealing with so much 
and I've personally had to speak at two memorials so far, two Zoom memorials so far. I hope not anymore. Um, and the lack of a, a semblance of a script or a pattern or of grief is very difficult, I think, for a lot of us right now. And especially when, when we're in profound isolation, I have my little family, but loneliness is real and I don't want to at all minimize that. And so how the material and our social relations and how they're being re rewritten or disrupted are so profound right now. I think to me, any sign of organic bottom-up, if we were to use a, a policy term, but anything that is actually built by ourselves that relates us to one another means so much to me right now. And so in the dress rehearsal, as you alluded to, Sarah, I was mentioning that I only go to Facebook to to see what, what has been posted in the Buy Nothing group. And, um, and um, Muhen was mentioning that you can, and I had some points of comparison also by neighborhood and intuited demographic profiles and by class, etc., by neighborhood regarding different notions of giving and need. But I, I, I definitely think a lot about who remains excluded from these new practices, even as I feel like they're essential and make such a difference. Like I do think that perhaps the immense amount of mutual aid um, that happened and self-organizing that happened both after Hurricane Sandy and in the state, um, um, at the beginning of the pandemic in the in the face of state failure really made a difference and helped to organize folks in different ways that made the uprisings perhaps more possible alongside so much work over the past few years articulating the role of invest divest by the movement for black lives etc that all of this came together in different ways for the uprisings last year. And I think it'll be really interesting to see whether the conversations continue because certainly I've been hearing conversations by folks who um, don't usually um, stay up to date um, on politics in new ways. Um, and so there's something to bring it back to how you started this conversation a little bit. There's something to operating at different scales at the same time and just making sure that that I for myself really value thinking about myself as part of a collective, even if it's amorphous and constantly changing and in terms of neighborhood, in terms of networks, wh whatever it is, different sorts of communities and to just step out of thinking as an individual yeah th that makes so much sense Selena um I think that maybe these are I mean there there are different ways of responding to our current conditions and 
I think um, some of us tend to retreat and, um, you know, fold back, uh, you know, to their, um, and I think we, we, we both do, we, we all do probably both, but, you know, go back to sort of a, a, a kind of a, a, a safe, if that safe center is available to them. So a, a, a nuclear family or the family, right, becomes the unit through which you're going to um, uh, fight this crisis and and survive this crisis so there's that and there are people who um also tend to just um you know put themselves out there and and fight more for the you know for the for the collective and i think these these reactions i think we we move probably back and forth between these two positions of retreating and and um and fighting um and struggling um and I think both are probably necessary for for our sanity, but um, but I think that um, what this this pandemic has has made me realize is that um, I do not want to. So what kind of what kind of community do I want to be in, or what kind of family do I want to have? Um, and and um, since I'm I'm raising my son. Um, uh, as a single mother, uh, I'm thinking about also um, ways of, I don't know, I, I, I became um, more aware of the, of the different sort of fa- types of families that exist. Um, and um, not only there's a single motherhood, but, but being an adjunct, being a single mother, being, you know, living this kind of, of life that um, doesn't really... Um, provide you with some stability, you know, either kind of, um, uh, emotional or, or material. Um, and, 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 and also I'm not saying that I'm not also denying that there's a certain kind of also privilege and access, right. That other people might not have, but, um, but let's say if, if we consider this group of adjuncts who, um, are also trying to write or, or produce, art and culture and at the same time our parents like in that sort of social demographic let's say um i'm thinking also of um of ways in which so i've been talking with my friends uh not outside the u.s about um um you know uh probably um meeting somewhere, you know, finding, finding a, a place where we could meet uh, some, somewhere, somewhere le- relatively affordable and, um, spend the summers together, for example, right. And, um, share the childcare, um, and find other ways of communal living. Um, uh, my friend who was saying like, who is now in her mid forties and, and, you know, she's, she's single. She's also still an adjunct. And she was like, I need someone who I, I need to sort of build a community who's going to take care of me as I grow older. Right. And so um, and so I was like, yes, and I want to be part of that community. Right. So I don't want to retreat in the in the in the nuclear family model in which, you know, care is only distributed amongst your your kin, direct kin. Right. I want to be able to to I, at least this is. Um, this is what I would like, you know, I would like to, to be care of a, of a part of a larger community of care, um, in which there's this kind of, um, um, mutual, um, 
yeah, you know, mutual living and mutual, um, you know, based on friendships and based on affinities, but, but, um, develop this kind of community together. So that was one of the ways that I, I, I started thinking about the future. So, so I feel that it's also hard not to, um, the idea of the commune has, has popped up a lot among a lot of people. And I think the commune is this model also of, um, which, you know, could also be, um, uh, tricky because it's almost a small, it's another kind of, uh, form of retreat, right? I'm going to retreat. I'm going to build this community and live in this way, uh, without having to deal, you know, with all the, the horrible stuff that's out there. So, um, so although there's a, I'm drawn to this idea of commune and sort of communal living and finding a piece of land and sort of cultivating our own vegetables, you know, I love that. But at the same time, I'm also aware that that's also a way of, of not dealing with the current structures. So, um, a lot of question marks of, of around alternatives. I'm, I'm, but I love this conversation. I think that's the kind of conversation we should be having. Um. I, your your discussion, Michael, also makes me think about just how hard it is when everybody is struggling to to keep acting with as best we can a generosity of spirit and not devolve into competitiveness. Um, and just you saying that, uh, recognizing that you also have privilege, of course, but I'm of two minds of this, like no one wants oppression Olympics, like none of us are going to win and, and none of us should have to compete or even have to state it. We should all, uh, how to get to a world where we don't even have to say this because these privileges are a minimal right. Um, and even rights-based language feels so fraught for me and not satisfying. But, but also just remembering that the act of cultural creation is based in the material and the bodily, just remembering that we have to take care of our needs and, and where new parents consumed by this and cons even if we don't get into all of the problematic discourse around us of organic food and Montessori schooling and everything that is completely unaffordable <laughs> around us um, and how we might not be good mothers if we don't partake in all of that um, and um, even it just, I don't know. I mean, in thinking about how muddling through amidst all this is a feat and about how, for me, thinking with the three of you right now feels like a joy and, and that there's something that's creative as in the act of creation, and I don't want to say productive because it sounds too economic, 
in the muddling through and the acting in ways that we don't have to then take back or regret. And that, that to me reminds me of the notion of non-reformist reforms um, that, that a lot of different folks um, talk about um, of when a compromise might be okay when it's not like, oh, you relocated a prison into some other place by fighting it off from your neighborhood. It's that, no, you, this one, it's not a huge win, but it's a win when you just like didn't get this awful thing built in the first place, even if it doesn't solve the larger issues just yet. It's something that we don't regret and we don't have to take back. Beautiful. Yeah. Alicia, uh, did you have a, another question, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was kind of um, dancing between the like wanting to like hook in the other question and then just still trying to follow what was what was happening on its own. But I'm it's bringing about also a lot of thinking for me. What you're both saying about you know maybe not so much how can we be still generous and and kind with each other despite um being in a situation of crisis but like how does the situation of crisis disrupt ways of being with each other that have been otherwise like normalized um where we're more disconnected and just to say that i'm really curious about how being in like being in crisis together for various reasons, but also having like COVID being this one thing, at least that everyone has some way of um, sensing into really immediately in a way that's very common. Um, you know, you know, understanding of course that the ways in which COVID is um, manifesting and affecting people's lives is like also just blowing up and exposing the um, the discrepancies in, in how we're able to access care and all that. But yeah, I think in, in what you're both saying about finding alternative ways of, of being, of supporting one another and things that are kind of cropping up that are, like you said, Selena, amorphous and, um, and not necessarily based in a decision to, you know, like start a commune or to like create something that is its own new system i just like to to hear you know before we close i know i think sarah has another question too but just what's become possible for both of you i was thinking of this through teaching um like what's become possible in teaching remotely that wouldn't have been possible otherwise in terms of being able to relate with one another in different ways you know, even this conversation that wouldn't have happened in this way if we weren't in this exact situation. Um, yeah, and I, I've just been wondering how, you know, even being with each other from our homes or being with each other in this like sort of dream realm that is Zoom where like we can see each other and hear each other, but we can't touch each other, we can't smell each other but we can be in really different places. I know we're all in New York right now, but we can be in really different places, but we're still in our hopefully somewhat safe place of being at home. 
and them being with each other and yeah what what is that opened up what like ways of being in relationship with one another um has that allowed you know if if there's been any anything good in that for you I know that was very meandering but if you have anything to say about any of that I feel Zoom is so tricky because um, there's a, a seeming facility to it. You just have to sort of log in and you're there. But um, I hear people complaining about being Zoomed out as like as if work, um, um, just the amount of work that we have to do is just like increased suddenly <laughs> because these Zoom hours or, or are... Um, People think that they're not as sort of labor intensive, but they are. And so I think that there's a trickiness to the to the kind of ease to which you know it is we can connect. Um, so I feel we almost we're we're we were overworked before, but I think that Zoom kind of made it worse, probably. But but I think that with um, what Zoom did is just like you know kill certain spaces. So like you know I feel it killed the classroom as a space, right? Um, and the classroom with all that it entails, you know, as what kind of space a classroom is. Like from an architectural point of view, from a historical point of view, like what is the classroom, you know? Um, this this sort of meeting point of um in which there's sort of knowledge being produced and discussed. And so um I'm thinking Zoom might have to kill the workspace, right? And I think a lot of companies are gonna jump on that occasion and 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 sort of you know just um run with it because you know that's less rent to pay for like facilities and and rent so i think that that what what zoom did is just um enabled um enabled what was already kind of um um threatened to actually um um yeah, enabled to sort of uh, come to terms with what was already threatened. So, um, you know, paying less rent for companies or not paying uh, more hours, extra hours, if, if because, you know, how do you quantify it on Zoom or something? I don't know. So I feel like there's, um, there's a lot of disadvantages in, in this kind of, um, in the, in how easy this interface might seem or be. Um, there's a lot of, of things that are actually, um, um, yeah, not, not being addressed. Right. Um, and so, and so, yeah, work is, is seemingly everywhere with, so, so there's no also disconnect between, you know, work and non-work, which was already the case for many of us, but now it's just like one big sort of mush of, of sort of, um, you know, time and spaces, like there's really no separation, um, and what it allowed, um, what it allowed sort of birthdays to happen <laughs> no matter where you are. So, you know, for friends to join from abroad, like say if it's your, you know, and it allowed these kind of probably, um, for me at least, more connections with people who are not like sharing events that I wouldn't normally share with people who are not in my geographical location, um, that's what I think what I can think of being one of the advantages. But I have yeah. a fraught relationship with Zoom as well. I know that like there were a bunch of conversations happening between 
Hong Kong activists and Black Lives Matter activists, and they were um, both resorting to Zoom and feeling ambivalent about it because at the time Zoom had just shut down the U.S.-based Zoom account of a Chinese dissident, and and so I do think of Zoom as a mass surveillance system sometimes, but I use it also. Because out of the different ones that are popular and out there, my students feel like it's by far the one that they're most accustomed to and they're most user friendly for them, and so it is hard. And at the same time, I'm so appreciative. Yesterday, I helped to facilitate a housing workshop, bring together、um, activists, and it was just fifteen people, but. It was activists and scholars regarding housing rights and、um, stopping evictions from Cape Town, South South Africa, São Paulo, and Minas Gerais,、um, in Brazil,、um, people in Portugal and Spain, and、um, the U.S. and it was and it was and England and it it went. Just like pretty smoothly, we all went onto the same document and took notes together. We all presented. We all shared insights. We all got into smaller breakout sessions and then came back. And that's partly because everyone seems fairly fluent with how to work these spaces now. So it both it's like simultaneous. Inclusion and exclusion at all times, and I'm still thinking through how to navigate that and which parts I really want to spend energy contesting, when, when I we all have so many competing priorities right now. But I guess one other thing that I do appreciate is just thinking about asynchronicity in different ways, because I do think that there um that like. Just being forced to set up new platforms for my students has finally made me implement some pedagogical、um, activities, gestures that I knew sh- I should have the whole time of like allowing discussion posts are not synchronous because. I was super shy and never spoke once in a single class until I graduated graduate school, and I don't know how I got into this profession where I have a captive audience and I'm supposed to sound coherent for hours at a time, many times a week. But, but so many of my students have flourished and engaged with others in new ways by. Be by regularly discussing、um, readings asynchronously rather than gathering our their thoughts, feeling really anxious, and, and raising their hand, and by then discussion has moved on in awkward Zoom、um, class sessions. So、um, there's different ways in which I'm I'm really. Valuing the asynchronous and trying to rethink about different ways of relating to others in ways that respect different modalities.、Yeah. I actually love this. This the yeah. Now that you make me think about asynchronous in that way, almost as a 
as a, you know, as a possibility of another kind of time, right, that doesn't follow this kind of, um, you know, task-oriented time kind of that we all follow. So I, I do appreciate that, um, your thoughts around around that, Selena. And, and one thing that I want to say also before um, we all go back to... Um, um, we end this conversation. I was I was thinking about languages um, and how um, you know how to find a language that can sort of respond to the conditions that we're all in without sort of falling into these sort of uh, philanthropic or liberal th- tropes or uh, uh, hypercritical ones. And then um, I. Um, I was just thinking about how you made up the word landia and I was thinking about neologisms and so sort of inventing words in order to sort of um, you know that could actually express uh, things that haven't you know haven't made it to like official language yet which also brings me back to like language acquisition and like our, our children right now like are both are are our um our kids are about the same age and um i think Astra, astra's older and she already has like more words and speech but I'm th- luca's just like learning his first words and i think there's something there about um you know invention creation or imagination that um you know thinking about languages that um do not have or do not yet have you know um uh yeah a, a pre-existing sort of um structure for it or a pre-existing sort of a space so um yeah it was just, I, I think that that could be sort of a productive space you know to think about language mm-hmm. and that brings me back to the part of alicia's question that i hadn't answered of where the line if what belongs to you is yours what belongs to me is mine's comes from and that's just quoting my two-year-old daughter and appreciating when she was conjugating in a very sensible way but not officially properly like uh, like oh I am falling I falled and then by the next week she had learned I fell and I almost felt wistful because in some ways I wanted to legitimate her intuition and her and to help codify her logics, which made total sense. And I remember that, you know, linguistic studies on Ebonics show that Ebonics in many ways um, um, reflects more consistent grammatical rules than quote unquote proper English. And um, and I remember the the idiom, the difference between a dialect and a language is who's got the army. And just all of this, thinking about our little experiments and thinking about what gets legitimized and if the pandemic can be a suspension of certain criteria because everything is topsy-turvy anyway, which parts of the quote-unquote illegitimate do I want to keep? Because really, they're not at all illegitimate in my eyes um, at this time. So 
I think that I'll draw this incredibly intricate and nuanced and meaningful conversation to a close just um, by pointing to an, a dance choreography um, element to Invitation of the Species. So in addition to the podcast, there, we're working with dancer choreographers. So we're interviewing them and also watching them dance. And in this case, Daria Fain was referring to a poet that we both know the work of, Anne-Marie Albiac from France, and focusing on the question of the césure. And um, Daria was saying that this that that crisis is not really new to her. She does, there's nothing in crisis, whether it's environmental or pandemic, that's that seems really different. And so we quote Anne-Marie Albiac, and she elaborates on the césura, the crisis, separation in the Greek theatrical tradition. And she uses my sighting of the glaciers melting on what was an unseasonably warm day in the autumn as a metaphor of a different kind. She says the reasons for our suffering go way deep below the surface, as in all the mass of a glacier below the top. To see the suffering of the world, then we need to be present with separation, to live in the separation, which is a false separation as of mind and body. And I think sometimes we forget that COVID is, is an extension of the environmental crisis. It's, it's, all, it's all part of this crisis which has been going on <laughs> that's so connected with the racial capitalism that is, is not disconnected from slavery and colonization. And, um, and I, I think she quoted a Nigerian philosopher, Daria Fain, who, you know, who looks at the problem of knowing, that we think we know, you know, and letting, letting that go and being in a state of not knowing. Well, thank you for bringing that in, Sarah. The living in the separation feels really vital and important right now. Thank you. I mean, that, that discussion, what you just said was super generative. So I was already thinking about so many. Yeah, I was thinking about that in relation to what you were saying, Selena, about the amorphousness of, of it all and um and how the the not knowing is is that is that space right of um sort of yeah figuring it out or negotiation or something yeah and i was also thinking about the the continuities of these long histories of dispossession and racial capitalism and appropriation of land and enslavement and everything else and and the pandemic just throwing everything into sharp relief so by no means unprecedented but really just throwing our our landscapes into sharper relief and because you were talking about glaciers Sarah I I thought of these mountains rising in new ways in ways that are both so dramatic at certain moments and seemed so violent but could have been predicted in other ways because the shifts had been happening for so long and just 
thinking in ter- and and then thinking about our questions of time and scale and and space again and yeah mm-hmm. and but the but the notion of not knowing yeah i i have to think about that more because i don't know if it's because i want so badly to know i just it's so hard for me to feel comfortable with it and yeah. and especially because some ways of knowing are so devalued and and we're fighting abstraction in a lot of ways in terms of algorithms and codification and financialization it, it would be such a challenge to figure out how to fight that without an alternative way of knowing and be like, oh, this is what it is, mm-hmm. to instead resist in, right. an, in an altogether different way. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense, Lena, in terms of, um, I think that that in a way, because of these, of these um, histories, um, there is like what where we you know what we're living today is almost a logical outcome of everything that you know has been was there before um and the logical outcome of like i don't think capitalism can can go any other way than the way it's going so um it can only go towards like further extraction and and dispossession and and exploitation so um so in a way we know what the you know the system we are living currently living in is producing and we have known that for a while i mean some people have um, but then I was I was also interested in what you were saying, Selena, into like how to validate other ways of knowing, right? Um, and probably other ways of living. I think is it's and um, ways that are more um, you know um, where there that separation um, between let's say like mind and body isn't as um, as marked as it is right now. Um, so maybe like non non Western ways of knowing, but also I don't want to sort of romanticize that. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it is true that what we're living right now is the history of is the outcome of a, of a particular history, right? Of a, of a history of um, uh, Western imperialism, right? And um, and so um, yeah, to to find other knowledges that are not um, inscribed within that tradition or at least might be inscribed but but also sort of subverted or or um question it or challenge it i think is important um but yeah can i do a really quick shout out to the the um, Google group to the listserv that Miren and I are part of, of Poet Mamas, the, and where, like, I don't think in it's been in existence for at least a year, right? Maybe longer. And I don't think we've ever found mm-hmm. a nap time where we could all meet. Yeah. But somehow when someone said, oh, maybe we should get rid of this group we have never gotten to meet online um they're like uh, there were um other people chimed in no i like the existence of this um so even just that reminds us like 
of trying to articulate aspirations. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe um, in, just as a, as a last shout out, I just wanted to invite people to check out the series with Ugly Duckling Press and Miren's very strong notes on mother tongues. So that's out with Ugly Duckling Press. <laughs> and also Selena's book, Glandia, with Belladonna, the wonderful feminist collective, for further reading. And of course, there's much more written by both women and much more to come, and we're looking forward to that. So thank you so much for thank joining us. Thank you so much for this. My language has a baby whose language is without words. My language communicates affection to her baby by fluttering her lips, twisting her tongues, and babbling inchoate words, syllables her baby seems to understand. Her baby won't stop laughing. My language is hilarious. My language is searching for a language capable of expressing in words the magnitude of the love she feels towards her son. Soon he will demand words of her. This inevitable human expectation makes my language anxious. My language is an anxious language. Languages who become mothers typically pass down the language their mothers spoke to them a so-called mother tongue, but my language doesn't speak such a language. My language speaks many languages, French, Italian, Arabic, Spanish, and English, none of which she can call home. Like other languages originating in histories of colonization, my language always had a language problem, something akin to the evacuation of a first or native tongue a syntax endemic to the brain and to the heart. When she has time, my language barely has any time. My language wastes it googling etymologies. Etymology, analysis of a word to find its true origin. Etymos, true, real, actual. Native and nation share a common etymology from the Latin nativus, innate, produced by birth. But nations belonging to the nation-state system aren't innate. They are the outcome of ongoing territorial wars, man-made borders oblivious to pre-existing ecosystem in which language and land evolve symbiotically. The nation of the modern settler colonial nation-state is premise on the eradication of groups and languages predating its formation. It turns land into territories that stand for a nation's monolithic identity, nationalism, monolingualism. Native languages, like other endangered species, are going extinct. On January 4, 1984, for example, the last speaker of Yavitero, an Arawakan language spoken near the Atabapo River in Venezuela, died together with the last Yavitero words. My language isn't dead, but she suffers episodic bouts of systemic melancholy. She comes from two nations, Lebanon and Venezuela, that are terrible at being countries. 
economically devastated nation states on the brink of irre irrecoverable collapse. As she writes this, people in Beirut are rioting, torching symbols of wealth accumulation like banks and partially built condos promising luxurious lives in English. The government has defaulted on its debt. 50% of the population is predicated to sink below the, below the poverty line and into hunger. Prices of bread and other basic goods have skyrocketed overnight all of it compounded with dysfunctional public infrastructures in which basic services like water and electricity are irregularly supplied, if at all. In Venezuela, in May 2020, the inflation rate was 2,296.6%. My language can entirely blame her country's or their criminally corrupt political class for their dramatic failures at being countries. Formerly colonized territories inherit from the mother country a poison legacy whereby their survival is contingent on the adoption of a nation-state system and the enforcement of a colonial language. Fanon, an author who has shaped my language's understanding of herself, talks about the pitfalls of national consciousness in the wretched of the earth. There he describes how the bourgeoisie of recently liberated countries do terribly at emancipation. To become a country is akin to replicating colonialism's social and economic disparities. From a collage in progress, my academic research emphasizes that embodied knowledge can be just as valuable as technical knowledge. Still, it's hard for me to take this to heart. I tend to think of parenting as taking me away from thinking work rather than constituting it. And yet this is my grand project, an attempt to translate the values I hold most dear into everyday life. My book writing goals now feel comparably urbane. This is a way of examining poetry research and habit the mundane as mutually generative rather than inversely relational pursuits or rather than as my previous self thought. For what is poetry but close attention, but primordial love, hesitations and silences and lines askance and enjambment that every once in a while slow or suspend my breath off the page. Amidst a torrent of words and errands and auto paid bills and news headlines, to aestheticize in this case is not to objectify, but to combat the anesthetic derision of care work as unintellectual, as immigrant, as gendered, to emotionally respond to, to sensitize ourselves to whatever we typically dismiss and inure ourselves to. I'm trying to look at these words and errands and moments anew, to give each its proper scaffolding of negative space and weight. I have to learn that in presence, the rushed, the partial is still a whole, an experiment in form. To love her is to constantly calibrate new distillations of interdependence, to glean new forms of sovereignty and interiority. To love her is to remember the process of becoming without trivializing the fact that already she is. What each of us notices is different. Each of our collages reflects a different color of feeling, a different skeptical glare, 
and in the jagged edges, we have shade as well as light.